0: Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, and let all those who hate him flee from before his face. So I got to tell you, I had a completely different episode planned for today. Today being, of course, the Feast of the Annunciation as I record this. Um, I didn't really want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the consecration because, let's be real, if you really want to know opinions about the consecration plenty I think every Catholic podcaster is talking about it still um, about you know its validity or this that and the other whatever don't I don't care to get into that discussion but I had another podcast planned for today where I was going to talk about how vampires, apparently what used to be Gothic fantasy was actually, supposed to be tucked into that category of science fiction that would eventually become science fact. And as interesting as that episode is, because it also has to do with the flash to bang of an Alex Jones conspiracy theory to actual notable news, (laughs) that flash to bang got really, really short. Because it used to be like, well, so it used to be that conspiracy theories were conspiracy theories for years until finally the proof would come out. And then, you know, COVID hit and these last couple of years, a conspiracy theory or disinformation would only be a a conspiracy theory for like six months before it came to fruition and it suddenly became real. Um, And so it used to be the flash to bang from conspiracy theory to conspiracy facts was about six months. And now it's about two months. And I was going to talk all about that and I might still post the episode because I did. Rec- I recorded the episode. I just don't know if I'm going to post it because I don't know. But I was sitting in the drive-through today, picking up, picking up some food, and I had a thought that was un- completely unrelated to anything that I was that I was imbibing today when it came to media and things going on. So. And I want to share with you <clears throat> what war actually looked like in the later portions of Christendom. Because I think it will surprise you quite a bit. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. Let's get started with a prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Sancta micael arcangele defendenos in proelio. Contra nequitiam et insidias, diabli est o praesidium. Imperatili Deis, supplicas de precamur, tiu ce princeps Militae Caelestis, satanam aliosque spiritus malignosciad perditionam animaram, tur in mundo divina virtute in infernum de trude. Amen. Cor Jesu Sacratissimum miserere nobis, Mater Dolorosa, ora pro nobis, Beatis Carolus sedomo Austriae, ora pro nobis. Dominellus stendefactum tutum et salvi edimus Ave Maria purissima immaculata conceptio est in nomine patris et filii et spiritus sancti amen So it might surprise you to know that Christian warfare is very very different from the way it's very often portrayed because they always allude to mercenaries But you never really know exactly how many armies, particularly when you're leading up into the Renaissance, were actually contract mercenary fighters. I would like to say that everybody has heard of the Landsknecht. Everybody has heard of the Swiss Guard. A lot of people don't know that the Swiss Guard was originally a mercenary company that eventually became beholden to the Vatican and and to Holy Rome. But even the Lanzinect were very much in that same weave. You might remember, if you saw the movie Braveheart, way, way, way back when, where uh, King Edward the Longshanks, I forgot the name of the actor who played him. He was such a spectacular actor. Um, but King Edward the Longshanks had had a scene where he's talking about the Welsh bowmen and conscripts from Ireland and Dutch mercenary and this, that and like, I mean this whole big con- uh, conglomeration. And this is in the thirteenth century, thirteenth going on to fourteenth century when Edward and when uh, when Edward, I think is Edward the Third, I don't know. It's really hard to say, but anyway, Edward Long Longshanks. Um, brings in mercenaries from a, route, from, from a route, particularly through the connections in France and all this and all that, right? Well, one of the advantages of fighting with a mercenary company is that it actually dramatically reduces the carnage. You see, the mercenary company doesn't have a dog in the fight. There's no emotional involvement. So the decisions that are made by mercenary company commanders, battlefield commanders and such, they're made for the achievement of the objective and the survival of the company. Both of those things are involved. Which is huge. Because if you hate your enemy, if you are enraged just when you're thinking about your enemy... Like, we'll say, for example, Russia today. Anybody who is going off to fight Russia, if they are motivated by an animus towards Russia, they're going to make poor decisions. You're going to run into things, and anyone who's motivated by an animus, and, we, and there were small segments of this, there were, there were instances of this that you could see with our fight in the Middle East from, with, the, uh, with the U.S., it'd say, for example, with Iraq and Afghanistan. Soldiers had a tendency to go just a little bit too far because there was an animus. There was an overt animus t- uh, towards the Taliban, towards the um, I forgot what the, I forgot what they called them before they called them ISIS in Iraq. But you get what I'm talking about. Al Qaeda in Iraq, whatever you know, before they were Daesh or ISIL or whatever. I don't, I don't I don't remember. I remember Daesh and ISIL and ISIS. Those were names for late Iraq. Syria, that whole nuanced extra conflagration, but there was actually a term for the resistance fighters in Iraq. And I forgot, and honestly, I forgot the, maybe just called them Al-Qaeda, well, Al-Qaeda anyway. Um, but there was an animus towards these fighters And that caused a lot of soldiers to do things that they probably would not have normally done had there been simply no animus. This is important because when you actively hate your enemy, that's where you get war crimes. So while there was a competitiveness between the Swiss Guard and the Lanzknecht, and that competitiveness would actually break out What you didn't have happen was you didn't have the Lansnacht with animus against other Lansnacht or Swiss Guard with animus against other Swiss Guard. And to be sure, and here's the thing, here's why this is important. Just because the King of France hires the Lansnacht doesn't mean that the King of Spain, if they're fighting each other, is going to hire the Swiss Guard. Because that's not how mercenary companies work. A mercenary company might be employed on both sides of the conflict. So you, might, so you will have battlefields with Landsknecht on one side and Landsknecht on the other side. And the only people that they hate are the Swiss pikemen who they're fighting alongside. Who they're actually on the same team with the Swiss pikemen, but they hate them. And they don't hate the other Landsknecht who are actually fighting against them. What does this mean? This means that battlefield commanders because they're not motivated by some animus to win by all by all means necessary, because they're not motivated like that, you get negotiations. You get offers for peace. You get legitimate you get sometimes in the midst of a battle, you might get surrender because the tactics of the opposing mil- of the opposing force were just that much better or they you know they were feeling it that day i'm going to put it in those terms because you know the tactics might be better they might have been better motivated they might be better supplied better food better you know better food fresher water more booze whatever the reason one side might actually overtake the other but what they did not do was slaughter people in a meat grinder. For all of the death and destruction and devastation that would happen on a battlefield in the Middle Ages going and, and leaning into the Renaissance, for all of the death and destruction, the fact is, is that the noblesse oblige still stood. Because you might be Lansne- a next mercenary you're not nobility, you're a merc. But if you're a double soldner or a veteran, the double soldner actually literally referenced the fact that the guys who were veterans and had fought in many ba- and had fought in several battles and, and managed to survive in their in their chosen career path more than a few years, they actually received double pay and they were put in charge. So you might have so you might have, you know, several double soldner sergeants who are helping to lead this ragtag bunch of flashily dressed, well-armed and armored mercenaries. And I do mean flashy, like I really, like, I'm not a huge fan of the dressing style for the time period, but I'm a huge fan at the fact that they had style. It's something terribly lacking in this day, in this day and age, particularly in the West. You know, they may have had crazy fashion in the Lanzknecht and in the Swiss Guard. And, if you, and by the way, if you want an example, the Swiss Guard still largely wear the same stuff that they wore 500 years ago. And it was not dissimilar to the, what the Lanzknecht wore. It was actually very much the same. You cannot mistake a Swiss mercenary. Nor can you, and you would not have been able to mistake the German Lanzknecht, the German mercenaries. And the, Rodel- the Rodeleros and the various, and the various um, commensurate mercenary groups that would have come out of Spain and Holland and France and all that, you would not have been able to mistake them for anything other than who they were. And there's a certain nobility to that. I mean, there's a certain, de- you know, detestability to it because, you, oh, you're paid soldiers, blah, blah, blah. But you never really understand exactly how noble mercenary war fighting actually is. Particularly when all of the sides employ mercenaries from all of the same companies. So, for example, this would be like Blackwater today contracting for both Russia and Ukraine. The fact is is that they're mercenary soldiers and so and so it doesn't matter on whose you know whose flag they fight under the fact is is that they would still fight it does not mean that they would intentionally go out and kill the their fellow mercenaries it just simply means that they're paid to do a job and they're going to do it to the best of their ability and you actually reduce combat casualties you reduce those fatalities why Because there's no hatred. Because you're paid to do a job, and you're good at your job. But at the end of the day, whether it's for France, or for Luxembourg, or for Switzerland, or for Milan, or Florence, or for Macedonia, whether it's it's for a battle in Prussia, or a battle in Denmark, ultimately, it's a job. It's a job that pays well, that if you're exceptional at it, will continue to pay well. And if you suck at it, you'll eventually stop getting paid. Or if you suck badly enough, you might die. To be sure, they had mercenaries such as this in many countries in the West. And I believe that they even had mercenaries such as this, even in Japan. They wouldn't call themselves mercenary because they would still be technically samurai. Or, but they might be known more as Ronin, who were, hired, who were hired swords. Well, Ronin had a tendency to survive quite a while. Because they were not anchored in to some of the more ridiculousness that that comes along with Bushido. And every country, every civilization that wasn't completely consumed with some level of hatred would have used mercenaries to some degree or another. However, and this is where it gets really important. Eventually, that did come to a close. And it came to a close when you had to have a loyalty test... To be loyal to your so-called democracy or your so-called republic. In Christendom, you were paid to do a job, and so you were expected to do the job, and that's the difference. In under Christendom, if you failed to do the job, the penalty was the penalty for breaching that kind of contract was far more severe, because it was actually theft. And lying, which are commandment violations, but with the but with the rise of republicanism, you no longer needed that trust. You no longer you didn't or I, not that you didn't need the trust. You still needed the trust. You just didn't have it, and so you had to swear oaths. And so for a country like the United States of America, which is the largest mercenary company on earth. Assuming we can really get something from you. All that really did was as 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 Christian kingdoms fell and you had rise of, and you had the rise of republics. You now actually had to stay under your flag. you needed to swear fealty to your nation. And I say nation in sort of a quote-unquote. Because in some cases, yeah, it was still a bloodline. But more often than not, it wasn't. There is no bloodline that preserves anything except the monarchy in nations that still have kingdoms. There's no bloodline coming from a bloodline, coming from one of the applicable blood bloodlines, but there are no bloodlines for the Spanish crown, for any of the subsidiary governments, for any of the other leadership. There are no, there's no family. Who is the mayor or the governor or the prefect or the praetor, whatever, whatever the heck the Spanish name is for it? Who's the one in charge of Galicia Galicia used to be a kingdom who's the one in charge I don't even know what they call them now like I've seen I've, I've seen I think the area I think the region is actually now called acarunya I don't even know what that means I knew what Galicia was I know what Arag- what Aragon was Is. I know I know Valencia. For those of you who don't know Valencia, Valencia in Spain was the headquarters for El Cid. The El Cid, like the famous El Cid. But because it's not a Christian monarchy, because it's not a Catholic monarchy, with the proper hierarchy with Catholic laws, you know, based on the Ten Commandments and the way that they always were. Because eventually Franco just had, kind of had to give up because he wasn't going to win it. <clears throat> king Philip, if you would just be a good king. Otherwise, I would like you to step aside and let Sixtus Henry take care, take over. Anyway, because you had republics, now republics, because you can't afford to have the unruly uh, rule of the masses in the middle of a military, you had to have this carve-out. Everybody has to pledge their allegiance. They must swear fealty to the republic. I wouldn't have had to swear fealty to a republic if we weren't a republic. You know that strange affinity that the British have for their monarchs, despite the fact that their monarchs are certifiably insane? That strange affinity is propelled by the fact that they all know their king is their family. I don't have to swear fealty to the king of Spain, particularly if he's a bourbon king, because I'm a bourbon. I wouldn't have to swear fealty to the Habsburg king. Conveniently, that's my the other side of my family is actually Habsburg. I wouldn't have to swear fealty to King Philip, even though I think he's a moron. Because King Philip is still family. I don't have to pledge my loyalty to the crown. That's my blood. And conversely, I'm his blood. What a tremendous difference that makes. So yeah, we have an American Republic, and we have republics and democracies and laicite all around the world, as the French would say. And it's garbage. It's trash. Because it breaks the family bonds. that keep nations together. They keep kings from going bat crap crazy and off the deep end. Why? Because they will always remember that you're not just the king of Spain you're the head of the family that occupies the Iberian peninsula likewise the same thing in France you wouldn't have excuse me you don't have to pledge allegiance to the king he's either your king or he's not I can easily say... Actually, I can very easily say that King Philip is not my king. He's not. I can say that for a couple of reasons. One, I am not in Spain. Two, I would have gone with a bourbon king. If Franco Franco would not have been undergoing quite so much pressure, he would have actually put... He would have returned the crown to the House of Bourbon, where it belonged. Ferdinand Habsburg. He's not His Royal Highness yet. He's not the head of the family yet. He's a future head of the family. Or he's not His Majesty yet. But he is still His Royal Highness. And if he were in a position to lead a nation, and he put the call out, then I might offer my services, even though I'm preferential to the Bourbon to the House of Bourbon over the House of Habsburg. But if he were to put the call out, then I might offer my services as a mercenary, knowing full well that the other mercenaries, even the ones on the other side. Because this is actually the key thing. I got sidetracked with all the family stuff. And the family stuff is actually important, but in the fifteen hundreds, in the fourteen hundreds, <clears throat> I as a mercenary, I as a mercenary sergeant, might be in a bar with the mercenary sergeant who is from my organization. Well, I'm going to continue to use the Lonsnec, uh, because whether or not you've heard of them, I want to make sure that they're known. So. I might be in a bar, in a tavern, with a bunch of other Lansnecht. We've all kind of we've all kind of showed up in the area. I've got a contract with the Duke of with the Duke of Milan. The other guy's got a contact got got a contract with the challenger to the Duke. Doge, actually, if I'm using the right term. Well, the Doge doesn't know doesn't care, does not care that the veteran sergeant of the Lonsnacht on the other guy's army, in the other guy's army, and I may have gotten schmammered, slam hammered the night before the battle. I mean, you might care if we, bo- you know, if we both can't carry our weapons in the morning. But the other reason why I chose, chose Lanzenecht is because, you know, Germans are very well known for being able to hold their booze. But we might have gotten drunk. And we might have sang songs. And we might have danced and, and both chased the barmaid or whatever. And then that next morning, when we're on the battlefield, we're adversaries. And that's going to be the point where our medal is actually proven. Which one of us was the better mercenary? Which one of us was the better soldier? Which one of us was leading the better unit? And at the end of the battle, when the battle has either been won or lost, that veteran sergeant and I might be back in the same tavern, chasing the same wench. Singing the same songs. Remembering our fallen friends. Together. Commiserating. Together. No matter what the battle... No matter really what the outcome of the battle was. I mean, to be sure, I could be petty about it, or, or the other guy could be petty about it. <clears throat> But if we're truly Christian, yes, we had to fight. But we're still friends. We may not be allies, but we still have regard for one another. And that died. ...in the rise of the republics. Because in the rise of a republic... ...you can become a member of a nation... ...without actually being part of the family. And me, as a mercenary... ...for whatever reason... ...whenever I returned home... ...I served... ...my crown. I served... ...my king... If that was necessary, if my King comes calling, there's no doubt. Sorry guys, gotta go. My family calls. And that's the difference. That's the difference between Christian warfare. Because Christian warfare is all about fulfilling your obligations according to your state and your status in life. And so if you're a mercenary, then you fulfill your obligations under your contract. And if you're a family man, you still fulfill your obligations as a family man. And you can do both. And the war becomes much more humane. Why? Because as a mercenary, I don't care if the guy on the other side of the battlefield is French. I don't care if the guy on the other side of the battlefield is Florentine or Milanese or Sicilian or Lithuanian or Polish or Spaniard. That is not my concern. The battle ultimately is only my battle in that I have been called to execute the battle. That's it. And so long as the person who called the battle, the one who contracted with the mercenary company, doesn't welch on his debt, then he's got my sword. And you don't have to worry about raping and pillaging, you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about any of that. Because there's not a bitter hatred like the Saxons for the English. There's not a bitter hatred for the Germans like there was in World War 1 or World War 2. Again, Germans And when you get that hatred off of the battlefield, I mean, granted, it does make the battle-hardened veteran far more dangerous, because I know that when I went to Afghanistan, I didn't carry animosity for any of the Afghan people, beyond the annoyance that they would present on a day-to-day basis. But I didn't have animosity towards the Taliban. Why? There was nobody in that country who flew the who flew the planes into the World Trade Center. They didn't fly the planes. Those guys, ostensibly, died. Oh, but they planned it. Yeah, no, we caught them, and we killed all them. Nobody I fought in Afghanistan was at all responsible for any of the heck, uh, any of the hell that may, have, may or may not have been unleashed in the United States of America. Not, well, not one single person. I'm going to hate a whole people because of the actions of some retards? Come on. But three years in war teaches you a thing or two about warfare. And the first thing it teaches you is that you don't actually, well, at least the first thing it taught me, is that I don't actually have to hate my enemy to kill them. I don't actually have to feel one way or the other about them. Unnecessary. If I have an objective, and they're in the way of that objective, then I get them out of the way. And if I'm in a good mood that day, then it's probably going to be really fast, really effective, and with a minimum of muss and fuss. And if I'm in a bad mood that day, then there might be more muss and more fuss. But I'm still going to endeavor to have it over quickly. Not nailing people to the wall and skinning them alive and drowning them in gasoline and lighting them on fire while they scream out into the darkness. Not doing any of that. Won't even actually kill them if I don't have to. Not interested in all that. Captured is just as good as dead. Either way, you're off the battlefield. They both work. If they resist to the point where they gotta die, well, then they gotta die. Do I have a high threshold to when they have to die? No, I don't. They just have to be an imminent lethal threat. And it only has to actually be potentiality for lethality. If there's a potential for lethality, then uh, I'm sorry, dude. I'm coming off of this battlefield alive. That's just the way it is. I am not interested in fighting a war that is a meat grinder like the First World War. I am not interested in obtaining the total unconditional surrender or annihilation of a people like we did in the Second World War. I'm not interested in that. If I can get you to surrender without you dying, confident that once I have your surrender, you're not going to try and do something silly later that day, then you're not going to die. But if you pose an imminent threat, I'm going to snatch the life out of you. Because that's the way proper warfare is conducted. It is not kill the people, burn the town, insult the earth. Heathen do that and we in this country have done that a lot more than anyone in the united states of america knows we have done that so much more to more people (coughs) and what's worse is we did it to them for what crazy you would be you would be surprised
1: <clears throat>
0: You'd be horrified actually, to find out how brutal we have been as a nation and for how little cause. Personally, I prefer Christian warfare because Christian warfare is de facto just warfare. You fight to the point <clears throat> you fight to the point where you need not fight anymore. You save that believing that you're going to somehow die a martyr or a hero. I sacrifice my life for my country. No, dude. I'm not even interested in gaining the sacrifice of the other guy for his country. Just war is fought to achieve objectives. Outcomes. And those outcomes should never be annihilated cities and decimated populations. We should never fight a war to the starvation of the other. Well, I mean, unless you're under siege. Because, oh, hey, by the way, that pressure, that pressure is an effective tool. And a smart person does not allow themselves to starve to death. What we're doing today is absolutely abominable. They've shown, in fact, and here's the thing. They have shown that they've been willing to do the same thing to the Russian people. Oh, they claim it's the oligarchs. Sure. But they, claim, but they have shown already that they're willing to do to the Russian people exactly what Justin Trudeau did to the Canadian people. And once they've actually worked out all the little bugs and they start getting the outcomes that they want from these economic weapons, then there aren't going to be any people who aren't going to be under this boot. And I wish that they were jackbooted thugs because at least you can fight a jackbooted thug. By the way, you get the word jackbooted from those knee-high boots that Jack, the pirates, used to wear. It is not. I mean, yeah, it's the same type of boots that the Nazis wore, but the jack boot, but jack booted. To be jack booted would be would be to be the kind of guy who wears wears the footwear necessary to go through some stuff. And that included landneckt and pirates and Nazis. Because there's only so much muck you want to get on the bottom part of your pants. Got to protect them, jokers, with boots. There is supposed to be nobility in all things. But what does it mean to be noble? Well, it starts with being Christian. It starts with believing what the church teaches believing that the standard that the church holds for all of for all of the members to achieve that that ethical standard is both achievable and necessary are <clears throat> oh, we colonized <laughs> much to the joy of every person who has ever been oppressed oh junipero sarah used to beat people did he really did he really you know that was actually still a normal way of being up until 1975 right you know that there are places in the United States that were still beating children in school in the 80s. In the 1980s, not even a full generation ago, beating children in school was still allowed. explain to me how we're better off today for not doing it anymore just curious oh it was a travesty all right you know what christendom didn't do they didn't nail people to crosses they didn't scourge them whip them and do all that other stuff now There were those later years when Protestantism seemed to sweep across the world. And you get the rack. And you get the Iron Maiden, and you get the guillotine, and you get all of these other weapons of torture. These are not Dark Age weapons. These are not, these are not like 500, these are carryovers from Rome and similar cultures and they were reintroduced in many cases to the renaissance so let me give you an example of the spanish Inqui- of a tool an interrogation technique in the spanish inquisition and i believe this is p- quite possibly one of my favorite interrogation techniques ever <clears throat> they would say this donkey this donkey right here can tell a lie not that it will speak a lie but it can distinguish it can discern the difference between the truth and lies so what we're going to do is we're going to put you in this room and we're going to have you put the, and we're going to have you put your hand in this box like through through this portal and you're going to grab the tail of the donkey and you're going to hold on to the tail and we're going to ask you some questions And it's gonna be a dark room, dark-ish room. It's not a very bright room, not a whole lot of light. <clears throat> It'd be like candlelight or whatever. And you're gonna and, and we're gonna ask you some questions. And then they would ask the questions. And they would say, Okay. Um, you're free to go. Ish. I mean, well, yes, so come on out, come out of this room, blah, blah, blah. And the first thing they would do is they would look at your hand. Because what they actually did in order to tell a lie, in order to distinguish whether or not you were telling the truth or lying, was they would keep the donkey in the dark. The tail would be there, absolutely. But they would cover the tail in charcoal. In black soot. You, of course, wouldn't be able to tell this because it's, you know, it's dry black soot. But you would come out of the dark room... And the the interrogator would say, show me your hand. Let's see your hands. And they would hold out their hands. And if there was no charcoal or soot on their hands, they would immediately be found guilty and they'd be executed. Because a liar who believes that the donkey can tell whether or not you can whether or not you're telling the truth isn't going to hold on to the donkey's tail that was a common interrogation technique torture was used without a doubt but they would torture you to the, basically to the point where you would confess. If you confessed. I mean some people would endure. But if you confessed, they would tor- like they would tor- torment, they would torture you basically, you know, for a set period of time, and then if you confessed, you'd be taken off of the torture devices, you'd be nursed back to health. And then they would ask you again. Because under canon law, at the time, any confession under duress was not a confession. You would have to confirm the confession afterward. Was this true? And then they would find that torture was not a particularly plausible, like it wasn't a a particular... Torquemada... Famous for his torture, (laughs) famous for his torture techniques, Torquemada was one of the first people to realize that that torture did not, enhanced interrogation did not often give you what you were looking for. It was a very brief time where torture was even a tactic because it was even a technique because you would just run out. It was eventually, eventually you would find out whatever whatever it was was just BS. Did you tell me that just because I tortured you? Yeah, because you were torturing me. Okay. Was it true? No. Okay. You'd be surprised, particularly if you're Catholic in America, you'd be surprised exactly how much Catholic history was just papered over with black myths from the Protestants. I was listening to a podcast. Actually, I was listening to uh, the Meaning of Catholic podcast with Timothy Philanders and Michael Joseph. And... Michael Joseph pointed something out that was remarkable. How much do you really know about the 19th century? I mean, think about this. We know a fairly large amount about the 20th century. And of course, we know a fairly decent amount about the 17th century, or at least we believe we know a fairly decent amount about the 17th century. But how much do you really know? Is not most of your knowledge of the 19th century relegated to the Civil War and something about Napoleon. I mean, you're literally talking about 18 1860 to 1865. Uh, Some people may know a few things about like 18, the 1850s. You might know that you know we got we got Louisiana for a really good deal. I mean, we got it for a million bucks, <clears throat> just like a ridiculous discount. Like we got it at a steal. But how much do you really know about the 19th century? What do we really know about Victorian America? We've got some stories about the Wild West. Again, Wild West, most of that stuff it's the latter half of the 18th and 19th century. What about 1801 to 1850? I mean, we know about 1875 we know about, like, Wyatt Earp and, and, and Buffalo Bill and, you know, Wild Bill Hilco- Hickok and, uh, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys. But what do we really know about the 19th century? What happened from 1801 to 1850? We had the Mexican-American War in 1875. We had the Spanish-American War in the 1890s. What about like 1820? 1833? What do we really know? And by the way, if you happen to have like a catalog, a large catalog that's significantly more than the stuff that I've just thrown out there now, email me, Caleb at RadioFreeCatholic.com because it occurs to me that I know very, very little I know about the 1700s i know about the 1900s i know about the 1600s the 1500s got a lot of stuff i've been picking up through there comparatively speaking i know that like at some point (laughs) what happened in the 1800s that provoked the uprising in occult. I know of the increase in the occult. Alistair Crowley, H. P. Bladovatsky, Eliphas Levy. But a lot of that kind of in the latter half again, too. I mean Crowley, I think, kicked the bucket in the twenties in the nineteen twenties or thirties. But what about Francis Barrett? I've read his work. But what would have actually spawned that off? Georg Jennings? Who I believe was the writer editor of the Opus Mago Cabalistica et Theosophicum? What do we really know about the 1800s? And isn't it weird... We just sort of glided right like we just sort of glid right over that one. 1700s, you know, 1789, French Revolution, 17, 1776, American Revolution, 1791, signing of the Constitu- uh, signing of the, current, the Constitution in its current form. Not a whole lot in 17 in the 70 early 1700s. I mean 1717, the, found, the founding of, of uh, English Freemasonry. 1689, Our Lady of La Salette. But, like, seriously, legit. Aren't we missing a whole bunch of stuff out of our history? Wouldn't it be kind of interesting to know? Like, how did we get to the charnel house Was that was the First World War? from the Romantic era of the Pirates and Privateers, 1700s, 1800s. What happened? And I say 1700s, 1800s because I'm, and I'm not convinced that there was a whole lot going on with the 1800s. But what happened? <clears throat> Isn't that kind of important? Because it would seem that somewhere in there, and I would say that that's probably the spot where most of the legacy was lost. Because we can't just say it's the, oh, it was the industrial revolution. That came later. But there was something culturally that happened to the world that made World War I even possible. Because you had the likes of Baron Manfred von Richthofen, who was completely removed from the reality of what was going on in the trenches. And he was completely removed from the reality of what was going on in the trenches, because him, as as a mid-level noble, the way he came up, there was still a noblesse oblige. The way, he came, the way he came up, there was still that romantic notion of what it meant to be Prussian. And for all of its warts, they were still Christian. At least culturally culturally the whole world was still but at least the known world was still Christian but something 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 in there just kind of flicked a switch and everything just went crazy and I'd be interested to know what it was because I know where it's not. It's not in the 1600s. And it's not really in the 1700s. And it was already full blast by the 1900s. It was already full on. They'd already gone full ham with the crazy by the 1900s. And war changed. War changed completely. There was something that changed where you were expected to throw your body at the enemy, regardless of what, it, regardless, come what may. And they were expected to participate in the war the same way. And if you look, it's pretty much the exact same thing that goes on today. I don't know. If you can figure it out, <clears throat> let me know. You can email the show, Caleb at radiofreecatholic.com You can DM me on Twitter at Mighty Colibri. You can DM me on sp3rn.com. You can find me at Caleb the Mechanic on sp3rn. I would be interested to know what went wrong, what changed. Because I know the history well enough to know. And I know how I was as a warfighter. And there's... (sighs) It's definitely missing today. The nice part is, is that it's laughably missing today. Today, we have Reddit warriors. We have keyboard warriors who are dumb enough to think that without any real military training, they can just haul off to Ukraine and volunteer to fight. To fight the Ruskies. (laughs) These poor kids had no idea what they were getting into. Anyway, I hope that you had a blessed feast of the Annunciation. And we'll see what the fruits of this day have brought. And I'm looking forward to it. No matter whether it's good or bad, whether it's a terror or it's a, or it's a beauty. Makes no never mind to me. God will, God's will be done. And with that in mind, continue to pray for the church, for our nations. And for those of us who are still yacking it up on Catholic social media, pray for us so that we don't get lost somewhere in the abyss as we keep trying to look at that thing and figure out exactly what it means. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you.
1: In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.